0: I was 17 years old, a high school baseball player, Royal High School in Simi Valley. I was the type of teenager that thought they knew everything. Maybe you know someone like that. I thought I knew everything about God. I didn't think I needed church. See, I thought that just simply believing in God was enough. I didn't know any other way I thought that that God was the type of God that would just allow everyone to get into heaven to spend eternity with him and then over a course of a week that changed radically I had a friend in high school her name was Heather she invited me to her youth group but I knew everything about God Why would I need a youth group? And so I looked at her and I said, thanks for the offer, but I'm not the church kind of guy. She said, okay. The next week she came back to me and she said, hey, how about now? Are you a church kind of guy yet? I looked at her and I said, no, still not coming. She asked me eight times. Eight times to come with her to church and finally I looked at her and I just couldn't keep telling her no. I figured she was never gonna let go of it. She was never gonna just let me be. And so I said, "Well, maybe if I just go with her one time." Like maybe if I just go with her one time, she'll stop inviting me to church. And I can just get back to my life believing that that just believing about God is enough to to get into heaven and and so I said yes finally and I ended up showing up that night that Tuesday night to youth group and and I remember feeling super awkward. I didn't know very many people there. I didn't run with the church crowd and and yet I was there and they played weird games. You guys play weird games in your youth group? So I'm at youth group. We're playing silly games. And then they do something before the message called a, a table discussion. We're sitting around this table and we're talking about the concept that I talked to you about this morning. The idea of sin. The idea that we were all born in iniquity. We were all born sinners. And I had never heard that before. This baseball player, this, this, this uh, senior in high school who, who thought he knew everything. He shows up to church on the first day and realizes he doesn't know anything. And I remember listening to the message and going, I wonder what else I don't know. And so I went home. My mom asked how it was, and I told her, I said, it was, it was good. Do you have a Bible, mom? My mom grew up Catholic, and so on the top shelf of her closet was an old, white, Catholic Bible Bible. And she, she goes up into the top shelf and she pulls it down and, and she blows off the dust. She hands it to me. And over the course of the next three or four nights, I sit on my floor at night and just pour over the very gospel that we're going through this week, the gospel of John, a gospel that's all about believing in Jesus that shows all about the things we've already studied and where we're going tonight. And I just poured over those pages and I realized that I had no clue about my depravity, my need, that we talked about this morning. I realized that I had no knowledge of who God was or what I needed to do to receive his grace. I read about this Jesus and the the things that we covered this uh, two two, two chapels ago. And and I read about, about his life and all the miracles that he did and all the things that he did to substantiate who he was. And right there on my floor, I made a decision that Jesus is who he says he is. That whatever need I had I couldn't meet on my own. And that I needed Jesus to save me from my sins. And tonight I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to make that same decision. I don't wanna I don't wanna hide it from you. I don't wanna sneak it in at the end. I'm gonna give you an opportunity tonight to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But before we do that, open up to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 for a little bit. Then we're going to be in John, um, John chapter 10. So if you want to put a finger in John chapter 10, we'll get there in just a moment. But as we open up to Genesis chapter 3, we talked a lot about that here this morning. We see that Satan enters into the garden in Genesis chapter 3, and he challenges God's word. He looks at Eve and and she says, oh, that tree we're not allowed to eat from. And he says, did did God really say that? And she says, yeah, we're not, we can't can't eat from it, we can't even touch it. He challenges God's justice. He He challenges God's love. In verse six, it the story picks up. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Satan comes and he tempts them. And he says, you can be like God. All you have to do is defy God. All you have to do is do what God told you not to do. And in that, you can achieve everything you've ever wanted. Remember I told you sin always over promises and under delivers? Satan promises everything. He promises that they'll be like God. But watch what happens. Sin comes into the world. And in Genesis 3, 7... It says their eyes were both open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin They look around and all of a sudden their eyes are open to their guilt and to their shame, to their nakedness. And so they, they scrounge up some leaves and they try as hard as they can to cover their own sin. But God knows that will never be enough. And then in Genesis three fifteen. He makes the, maybe perhaps the the singular most important promise anyone has ever made in the history of the world. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. God promises this singular male pronoun, this one who will come and will defeat Satan once and for all. And then in Genesis 3:21 we see the means of which he's going to do that. It says the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. It's going to take the sacrifice of an innocent being to cover the sins of humanity. And then, and then comes Jesus in John 1:29 says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not just the lamb of God who covers up your sin for a little while, not just the lamb of God who, who, who allows you to earn your own salvation. No, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one that they had been waiting for. So what did Jesus do? Well, it starts with his life. Jesus is the only person ever in the history of the world to live a perfect, spotless, sinless life. And that's important for you to know. He was perfect. He was spotless. The only only sacrifice that would have been worthy of God is a spotless lamb. And so Jesus lived a perfect life, which means he didn't deserve death, which means he didn't deserve wrath. He was the only righteous person. But death came for him anyway. On the cross, we see Jesus die and breathe his last. But three days later, Jesus is resurrected. He defeats death. He walks around. Hundreds of people saw him, the risen Jesus. It's not like he, 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 the, the disciples just said, oh, you know what? We saw him, but nobody else can. Hundreds of people saw him after they saw him uh, be crucified and put in a tomb. And then he's asc- he ascends into heaven, right up into the sky as the disciples watched. And his promise is that one day he will return. See, Jesus wasn't just a moral example. He wasn't just someone to read about and try to make your life be like him. He was, he was greater than that. He was born to die for us, for you, and, and for me. And all throughout the gospel of John, John hints about the work of the cross. Flip over to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 10 and 11 The thief comes. The thief is Satan. He comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He looks at himself. And he says, I came to give you life and life abundant. I came so that you could have eternal life. I came so you could have freedom from your sins. And he calls himself the good shepherd. Shepherds were charged with the caring of the flock. And their goal was to protect the flock at all costs. So if wolves show up, the shepherd is willing to fight to the death to protect the sheep, to give up his life. And so what Jesus says is the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. In other words, that's what I came to do. There's another hint in John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, where Jesus is raising Lazarus from the dead. And in verse 25, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He's raising Lazarus from the dead, and he says, I came so that you also could be made brought brought back to life, so that dead things can be alive again. In John 13 and 14, we see Jesus hours away from the cross. And he shares a Passover meal with his disciples. And the Passover was an interesting holiday, an interesting festival, because what it symbolized was back in Exodus when when God brought the, the plagues on Egypt and And the firstborn of all of Egypt was going to get killed. And he says to the Israelites, take the blood of the lamb and and, and put it on the doorpost so that the angel of death will pass over. And the Israelites do so. And the angel of death passes over. And as he's sitting with his disciples hours from the cross, he makes bold statements that he is that Passover lamb. That he is the one who causes the angel of death to pass over the people of God. And he takes the elements, the bread and the the juice, the cup. He says, this is my body that's given for you. And this is my blood that's shed for you. And and he's drawing this, this conclusion that he's about to go to the cross and give up his very being, sacrifice himself. Just like the lamb. Imagine the, the mood in the room. These men had, had spent three years with Jesus at least. They knew him more intimately than anyone, maybe except for his mother. And Jesus responds in John 14, verse 1. He says, Let, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And he looks at his, his disciples and says, I'm going away but I'm not going away without purpose. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And you know the way. It's funny, Jesus calls himself the way, the truth and the life. When he looks at the disciples, he says, you know the way. And I wonder in that moment if they remembered. I wonder if they remembered the hints that he had been dropping. The times that he told them that he was gonna die that he was the, the, the Lamb of God, the, the, the times where, where he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up my life, but then three days later I'll be resurrected. And then in John 15 through 17, we see the recorded last words to his disciples before the cross. We're going to talk more about that tomorrow. In John 18... We see Jesus is betrayed by Judas. We, most of us know that story, right? G, uh, from the arrest of the garden, basically the, the uh, Judas goes and, and he gives Jesus over to the Jewish and the Roman officials for just a few shekels of silver. And the guards come and they seize Jesus and Peter cuts off the ear of one of the guards and Jesus restores it. Another miracle right before the cross. And they take Jesus away. And between the arrest in the garden and the cross, there's only eight hours. And in those eight hours, they held six different trials. I mean, we can't really call them trials, they happened at night. Trials were only supposed to happen in the day. The witnesses were shoddy at best. It was a setup The Jews had Jesus right where they wanted him There were three Jewish trials Before the Sanhedrin And three Roman trials Before the politicians All of which were illegal None of which provided those credible witnesses And none of which had any evidence at all In John 18, verse 12, and following, we see this encounter at one of the trials with Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor. And he lived on the coast of the Mediterranean. It was this lavish palace. It was excessive. I got to see it, it was pretty impressive. There's a pool carved into the side of a peninsula, ocean on all sides. Pontius Pilate knew how to live, but he was a military man. He was hardened after a lot of battle. There's a letter that we found from Herod Agrippa to Tiberius Caesar, and and this is a quote from that letter. Pilate is unbending and recklessly hard He's a man of notorious reputation, severe brutality, prejudice, savage violence, and murder. And yet, as John 18 unfolds, Pilate comes to realize they have no case. This violent and savage ruler of the the Romans realizes Jesus is not guilty. And so he, he washes his hands of it, and he says, essentially, Jews, you handle this yourself. And after this, things get real. Look at John 18, Pilate becomes curious with Jesus, and so it says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews, essentially what, what he's wondering is, are you a threat to me? Are you gonna come and try and politically overthrow the Roman government? In verse 36, it picks up, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. And so Pilate again tries to get out of it. This prisoner exchange. He, he brings out every year, once a year, they would, they would free a prisoner to keep the Jewish people happy. And so what, what he does is he brings out Barabbas. Barabbas was a hardened criminal, a murderer. And and Pilate goes, okay, you Jewish people, you have, you have, you have one choice. Would you rather have Barabbas released or Jesus? And he thought he thought that for sure they would say, free Jesus, free Jesus. But that's not what happened. It says in, it says in uh, John 19, 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they said, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And then in verse 15, the Jewish people gathered together. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. And so they took Jesus. He had been flogged and beaten whipped to the point where his skin would be pulled from his, his body. And now he's handed over to be crucified. Crucifixion was a Roman art form. They took great pride in their crucifixion. Crucifixion was brutal. The worst of the worst ways to die. They beat him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a robe around his bleeding body. They said, hail the king of the Jews, mocking him. They led him down the way of sorrow, the Via de la Rosa, the, the road from the fortress where Jesus was beaten to the place Golgotha where he would be crucified. In John nineteen seventeen said, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. They made him, after his skin had been ripped from his body, placed the the heavy crossbeam of the cross across his shoulders and carried it up the hill to the place where he ultimately would be crucified for you and for me. And then, in John 19. Verses 26 through 30, Jesus is going to die on the cross. It says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing That all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so that they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. That's the what. Jesus... The perfect spotless lamb who didn't deserve what he got went to the cross. He was treated horribly. He was whipped and he was beaten and he suffocated to death on the cross. That's the what. But you have to know the why. Why did Jesus have to die? Perhaps the most famous verse of all time and the two verses following it will give us some sort of an idea. John three sixteen says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John puts it this way in one of his letters, 1 John 4. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, it's a, it's a legal term. It means he paid the penalty on our behalf. It, it's, a, it's a transfer. Remember how I told you that, that Jesus lived a perfect life? That he's the only righteous man to ever have died and ever to have lived? Well, what happens is when Jesus dies and you put your faith in him, there's this there's this beautiful transaction that happens where all of a sudden we get to take on his righteousness and he takes on the wrath that was meant for us. And we no longer have to to bear the weight of the penalty of our sins. But why the blood? Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. See, Jesus is the great reconciler. The word reconcile means to to purchase back. So when, when we say Jesus reconciled us to the Father, when he reconciled us to God, what we're saying is that through his death, he purchased us back to God. He bought us. And we're bought back to God through his death. There's another term in Romans 5 that I want you to know. The term is justification. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There's some tips in there on how we receive this faith or this this salvation. Ephesians 2 is going to drive it home for us. Verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. There's nothing you can do on your own to receive grace. It's the gift of God through faith. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. Have you ever been skydiving? Yeah? In the back, anybody else? Okay, I've been skydiving. Couple in, uh, three in the back. You guys, adventures. I've been skydiving, and uh, the story of me skydiving is uh, is really entertaining. I did it to get uh, my girlfriend back, uh, to impress her, and it worked. She's my wife today. So we went skydiving together. Thank you. Thank you. So if you're trying to impress a girl, go skydiving. Um, but I remember what was not impressive to my wife was my demeanor when I was up in the plane. So on the ground, I was, I was all about it. I'm like, let's do this thing. I was like top gun, put on my, my parachute started walking. And, and I was like, so excited to go. And then we get in the plane. I'm like, I'm actually going to have to jump out of this plane. Like a perfectly good, it wasn't that good. It was pretty, I, I thought maybe it was going to crash before I jumped out of it, but it didn't. Perfectly good plane. But here's the deal. As I got closer and closer to jumping out of that plane, I had to decide whether or not I had faith in the parachute and the person who packed it. See, there's two different things when it comes to faith. There's there's two different types of faith. There's a, a faith about On the ground, it was easy for me to have a faith about the guy who packed the parachute. There was nothing testing it. There was no reason for me not to have faith that he packed it right. I didn't have to jump out of the plane yet. But as I'm up at 15,000 feet, I realized very quickly that now I had to have faith in the guy who packed it. Because all of a sudden, it wasn't a parachute on the back of a guy on solid ground. It was a parachute on a guy about to jump out of a plane at 15,000 feet. And I don't know if if you've ever been in a a circumstance that you can relate, but but it's a lot different putting your faith in someone than having your faith about someone. I think the question tonight is, is your faith about Jesus? Has your faith been tested? Is there anything that has caused you to put your faith in him to where you know that if you left this earth today and you breathe your last that your faith in Jesus would be the thing that secured your eternal destiny see the english does a weird thing with the word believe when we read verses like John 3:16 we read it and we go, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Listen, there's not very many people, if any, scholars who believe that Jesus wasn't an actual man, that he didn't actually live and walk on this earth, that he didn't actually grow up in, in Israel. There's, there's, there's almost no one who would tell you that. There are a lot of people who believe about Jesus, but that word is the same idea as trust, it's not just believing about it. It's you trust in Jesus. Because when you trust in Jesus, something happens. There, there's a there's that transaction. Look at Romans, or no, don't look at it, but I'll read it for you. Romans 10, 9 and 10. It says, "'Because if you confess with your mouth "'that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart "'that God raised him from the dead, "'you will be saved. "'For with the heart one believes and is justified, "'and with the mouth one confesses and is saved.'" Something has to happen. You have to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. You have to put your trust in him. And so how do we know that Jesus is the solution to the issue of sin? Go back to John 19. Starting in verse 39. That same guy, Nicodemus, we talked about earlier. He's going to come back. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night. Remember that story? Comes to Jesus by night. He's, he's curious. He came now. After Jesus had died, he came and bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid." Nicodemus, this Pharisee, this hater of Jesus, this Jewish leader who was threatened by the very existence of a man claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus dies and his disciples scatter. But you know who's there? the guy who is transformed by Jesus, a guy who at first came by night so that no one would see him. And now in the middle of the day, at great risk to himself, is there to care for the body of his Savior. And then in verse 20, I mean, chapter 20, verses 1 through 9, this is the, the part of the story that everything comes down to. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. They, when they buried Jesus, they put this big giant boulder in front of the tomb and, and the Roman guard sealed it. And if that seal was broken, the, the penalty was that the entire Roman guard that was watching over that would have been killed. They would have lost their lives. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. I mentioned that when he defeated death, he appeared to over 500 people over a 40 day period. This wasn't a one time thing. And what I want you to know, as we get ready to wrap up, is as Jesus went to the cross, as he was put on trial, 11 of his disciples were nowhere to be found. The only one who showed up was John. The only one at the crucifixion was John. Why do you think that is? Because they had all lost faith. They had all doubted who Jesus was. If he was the Messiah, he was supposed to be this, this king, this ruler, this military genius who was going to come and deliver them from the hands of the Romans. And they looked around and they said, our Messiah is not going to die. Our Messiah is greater than that. So Jesus must not be who he says he is. And they go off into relative obscurity and pout. That's my translation. Three days later, it takes a woman who had incredible faith to go and visit the tomb of Jesus. Come back and report it to the disciples before they were curious to find what they would find when they get to the tomb and they run to the tomb to see if what she says is true. And what they experience is a a risen Jesus. He conquered death. He proved he is who he says he is. And you know how I know that? Because of those 11 remaining disciples, 10 of them died for their faith. Just three days before. Three days before, they wanted nothing to do with Jesus. But after they saw the risen Jesus, they were willing to die for their faith. Nobody dies for a lie that they know is a lie. Nobody. These men knew. They knew. If Jesus is alive, then they knew. If he isn't alive, then they knew. And their actions are the very evidence that we need to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. In John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus, he looks at Mary and he goes, do you believe this? If you believe in me, you will never die. Do you believe this? And friends, I'm going to ask you tonight, do you believe this? You've You've been confronted with the truth about who God is through creation, through scripture, through the life of Jesus. You've been put face to face with your sin, the reality that there's nothing you can do to come back from your own sin nature and now you've heard the greatest news that we've ever heard in the history of the world. And if you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, maybe you thought you did when you were three, maybe you've been living through your parents' faith, maybe you're here and you're like, this is all new to me, but. And that's pretty compelling. If the Lord is leading you to, I'm gonna ask you in just a minute to stand in front of us. Here's why, I know that's super scary. In this room are people who are your greatest cheerleaders. When you stand, they're gonna go crazy. They're going to cheer louder than you've ever heard anyone cheer. But here's why you need to stand. Because in this world, we see a place where Christians are constantly being beaten. Maybe not physically, but emotionally, mentally. We see universities that are, that are making it their goal to to take Christians and make them doubt their faith. See, the life of a Christian is a life of boldness. It's a life of saying, I belong to Jesus and I, I want everyone to know it. I don't care what the consequences are. I don't care what the risks are because Jesus didn't care. When he went to the cross for you and me, he didn't think about the risks or the consequences. He thought about the relationship. And tonight, I want you to think about the relationship. If you're here, and you either want to make that decision here tonight, or maybe you made it one of the the last few days at camp, I want I just want to encourage you. Stand boldly for your faith. Right now, go ahead. Stand stand where you are. If you want to make that decision, you can't sit back. That's not bold. I'm just kidding. Stay standing, stay standing. I I know the first ones are the hardest. That's why we got like a little stand-up sit-down thing going on. I'm, I'm feeling you. But I know the first ones are the hardest, but I know that there are others in this in this room. Others of you who are like, I just I need to stand. I need to profess my faith and So I wanna give you one more chance. If there's anybody here who wants to put their faith in Jesus for the first time, who wants to say, I belong to Jesus, maybe the first time ever, stand where you're at. Anyone else? Anyone else who wants to put their faith in Jesus tonight? Friends, stay standing. Stay standing for me. I'm going to pray for you in a minute. But here's here's what I want you to know. Standing up does not save you. Standing up does not save you. It's, It's a faith, a trust in Jesus that saves you. So as you stand where you are, you're proclaiming to everyone around and to yourself and to God that I belong to Jesus. And my prayer is that that's something that begins here at camp and sustains you for the rest of your life. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for those who are standing. Lord, thank you for new life. Lord, you have done a miracle here tonight. You've taken dead things and you've made them alive again. Lord, we praise you. And I just pray, Lord, I know the enemy would want nothing more than to to get into the lives of these people and, and cause doubt to creep in. But Lord, help them to remember what you have showed them at camp this week. Help them to remember the talks in their cabin, the, the messages that they've heard, the worship experiences, the time with you when doubt does creep in, and it will, remind them who you are and keep them. In Jesus' name, amen. Those of you who are standing, the beautiful thing, Yeah, you guys can give it up again. Those of you that are standing, I want to read two passages over you real quick. The first is 2 Corinthians 5:17 and 18. He says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away; behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You guys are a new creation. Whatever your past looks like, it doesn't matter." You're a new creation. You're made new in Jesus. Today is your spiritual birthday. Amen? Amen. One more passage. 1 John 5, 11 through 13. It says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. When you put your faith in Jesus, you have the assurance of salvation. You don't have to question where you will go when you die. You know through Jesus, you have been bought with a price and your eternity is with Jesus in heaven. Amen.